0: <laughs> well, Batigue, you are the strangest file I've ever seen in a podcast recording.
1: I'm not your little uncompressed 44.1 kHz 16 bit mono wave file.
0: We'll not compress you, Batigue. I am Maurice. I am the audio engineer of this show. Do you have a file name?
1: <laughs> Batigue.wav will do. <laughs>
0: That's so sassy, I swear to God. It's a so, little
1: petite. Oh, my God. Little Melon dot Impeg. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Gam Your guide to the iconic world of Dune. We will be exploring the themes, philosophies, and characters found in the sandy depths of this vast universe, from Frank Herbert's groundbreaking novels to the adaptations on film and TV. My name is Leo. And my name's Abu. And today on the show, we're back with more Children of Dune.
0: God, boy, are we back.
1: boy are we back did someone order 50 pages because these are (laughs) dance
0: yeah this is a very high calorie intake of 50 pages for (laughs) sure we are now in the final stretch of this book yeah and it is truly the end game if you haven't buckled up (laughs) <laughs> on this book club ride yet yeah now's the fucking time okay we're about to hit some turbulence folks
1: <laughs> irresponsible listening always be buckled in always, always. have your tinfoil hat on <laughs> that's the policy also fun fact this is the point in the book that i started yelling out loud at my paperback copy just yeah shocked and intrigued at the goings-on yeah. but before we can talk about said goings-on Let's make shoutout out mapes proud and take care of our housekeeping.
0: So, as usual, today's episode will contain no spoilers beyond the pages and books that we have covered thus far. So, as always, as long as you've done the reading, you're good to go for today.
1: It's true. Also, a reminder, hey, best way to support us is to become a patron over at patreon.com forward slash bar. You got some benefits for you. Ad-free episodes. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. Weekly blooper clips. What? Really? And <laughs> an invite to our Discord server where you can hang out with us. You can send us your memes as we send you ours. And you can hang out with our QueSats Hatterack level patrons. Oh, my God. Case Aiken. Matthew, good. Oh, Gentlemen, first of all, thank you so much. Second of all, listen, if we found you squiggling through the sand, naked mm. bodies crawling over our little fitzies, I would absolutely mold you to my hand and arm and <laughs> body to make you a living symbiote skin of Kwisat's Hatterack patron goodness. Yes. Which is <laughs> perhaps the most explicitly sexual thing I've said on this show.
0: <laughs> yeah. And, and thirdly, let us know if you want us to stop doing that or if we should we should like double and triple down on this bit because yeah. we'll keep doing it.
1: <laughs> you have so many ways to contact us. We're here for you. But thank you. Seriously, joking aside, as always, you make what we do possible. Thank you so much. Indeed. Thank you so much.
0: Also, a reminder that another great way to support this show is to get yourself some of our Dune-themed merch from gomjabarshop.com. We've got art, we've got apparel, we've got mugs, a tote bag, and so much more. The holiday season is coming up, folks. Yep. Get yourself something nice and get the dune lover in your life something nice as well. gomjabarshop.com.
1: <laughs> Finally, we love to hear from you, so email us. gomjabarpodcast at gmail.com. Send us your A. Thoughts. B. Questions. C favorite ice cream flavor, or D, all of the above?
0: Ah, my favorite.
1: Yep, that's the one, as it turns out. The correct answer, (laughs) D, all of the above. (laughs) Email us, gamjabarpodcast at gmail.com.
0: And with that, we have made, shout out Mapes proud, and completed our housekeeping. Y'all know the drill for these book club episodes. We'll start off today's discussion with a summary of the reading. And then we'll dive into a couple of key takeaways and finally wrap up with some yummy spice morsels fresh out of the oven. Mm -hmm. So before we dive in, let's take a short break, but you're not going to want to go anywhere, folks, because this is a wild ride. (laughs) We'll see you in a minute.
1: All right, welcome back everybody. Let's get into chapter 48. So, we begin today's reading on Seleucus Secundus, ever heard of it? With Lady Jessica, ever heard of her? And Faradin. Oh. Haven't heard of him. <laughs> who is that? <laughs> and they are... Who? <laughs> who is he? In the middle of another lesson. So they are They are teaching, they are learning. We learn that it has been months since Faradin began his training... And the results are starting to show in his, quote, more slender, more sinewy body, <laughs> end quote.
0: Okay. Yeah. I wish someone would describe me as
1: slender, as sinewy. <laughs> well, train with a Benny Gesserit for a few months and uh, <laughs> it'll work. Yeah. Well, in today's lesson, Jessica has been teaching Faradin about molecular memory and ritual, but has kind of diverged into talking about her son, Paul. Mm-hmm. Faradin, listening to this, understands that she's not exactly talking about Paul. Like, she's off topic from the lesson, but clearly she's up to something, and he's on board. He's just listening, like, whatever meaning she's got for me in this actual message to me, I accept, you know? Right. And the chapter ends, <laughs> climactically, as she begins to basically explain that this is all a, quote, sort of graduation ceremony, end quote, indicating that Ferradin's training is basically complete. Oh, okay. And Tychonic, love him, like bursts into the room, but he's like trying yeah. to walk casually and tries to collect Faradin Carino, But Lady Jessica acknowledges quietly to herself, it's too late. She's done it. She said the words and... Quote, Ferraden no longer was Carino. He was now Benny Gesserit. End quote.
0: Oh my god.
1: So cool. Also, we had to wait thousands of years for a male Benny Gesserit, aka Paul, and now there's like another one 20 years later. Crazy.
0: And both because of Jessica.
1: Yeah. She's no, got the numbers
0: to show for it, you know? <laughs> put that put that on her quarterly
1: one-on-one review with the manager. They're like, "Hey, so we have two deviations from our plan for the last 20,000 years, and both of them are you. Do we need to talk about this?" Stop training men. <laughs> but no, it's it's a uh, it's a it's an incredible moment and it's fun to see Ferradin's kind of complicity within it. And so effectively, Jessica has one Ferradin over. And he is now, whatever her plans are, whatever her grander machinations are, he is there with her. And he is not there against his will. He understands her reasons. He's, he's clearly on a very similar page to her in the way yeah. he's thinking about the world and the universe. So very, very cool to see this sort of graduation ceremony. And all the more interesting to see what happens next. We'll have to wait and find out what happens with the young Benny Jesuit Prince. <laughs> the young Carino <laughs> Prince. Ex Carino Prince.
0: Right. Ex Carino. Yeah, she has spent months like subtly indoctrinating him, I guess. Like yeah. so subtly that under the spy cameras, it took Tychonic until this final graduation ceremony when it was too late to stop anything. Right. To realize what was going on. That she had been creating this pawn for her own schemes and like teaching this pawn the Benny Gesserit ways. And now she's got this incredible tool in her toolkit to use as she pleases, right? Like having a Carino prince who may or may not ascend the throne, but is definitely the head of a very powerful house. Right. That's like a pretty good hammer to have in your toolkit. No kidding. In, a, in yeah. an imperium full of nails. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no kidding. Also, how do the nails feel about being called nails? <laughs> Unfortunately. Right. Uh, Poor nails. Poor nails.
0: All right, let's move on to chapter 49. In this chapter, we join Leto as he awakens from his deep sleep in that still tent. Recall how he went into the timeless Tao to wait out the great storm. When he wakes up, he has this really fascinating moment of what I termed prescient grogginess, where he realizes that time and space are just constructs of his mind (laughs) and that it's only by bold decisions that he can change the visions of the future that he keeps seeing and much like all early morning grogginess he's very much tempted in this moment not to move and to like sort of continue to exist in this halfway point between awake and meditation
1: i love this quote you pulled by the way like <laughs> legitimately beyond the fact that it's just hilarious, that this like prescient demigod is like Ugh, I'm tired. Right, right. The final sentence, because I expect you're gonna share it. The final sentence is legitimately such beautiful writing. I love it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it truly is. And you know what? Now I'm I'm not gonna share it. Oh no. My listeners can spend the rest of their <laughs> <Shit>. lives wondering. <laughs> no, here here's the quote. <laughs> he he's tempted to not wake up and what he wants to do is quote maintain the riyani magic of this revelation but survival demanded decisions of him his relentless taste for life sent its signals along his nerves end quote
1: <laughs> he says taste for life he's talking about life cereal actually uh he <laughs> loves a bowl of life cereal right in the morning
0: right <laughs> so post cereal he decides to eventually get up and start his day right He crawls out of the still tent, he packs up his gear, he fixes that still suit. Recall how Namri fucking like broke his still suit and Gurney was afraid that he wouldn't survive in the desert. He kind of patches it up. It's not perfect, but it'll do. And he then sort of examines the desert, right? What is the next move he should make? What is the next bold decision that he must make to, again work backwards towards the golden path, as we discussed in our last book club. He decides to call upon a worm using his trusty thumper, and he continues to head southward, reminding himself that, quote, always newness. I must always find the new threads out of my vision, end Mm. quote. Cool. Which, again, so on brand with so many of the themes we always talk about on these episodes. This idea that knowing the future is death, right? Right. So he travels south and he eventually arrives at a narrow butte and looks through his binoculars to see a harvester out on the sand along with a spice scout circling up in the air. The scout notices him and the thopter turns around and approaches Leto, landing nearby. And this is when Maurice, recall our boy Maurice from very early on in the book, yeah. Exits the Ornithopter with a Mala pistol in hand, pointed right. at Leto. Right. And this leads to a tense standoff between the two. And the scene begins off on the wrong foot, like almost <laughs> immediately, because yeah. Maurice keeps calling Leto an uncompressed 44.1 kilohertz <laughs> mono wave file.
1: Yeah, rude.
0: Uh, otherwise known as fatigue, which is the Fremen word for <laughs> little melon. Yeah. And Leto is wary of this because. In the context of this word, the little melon is the melon out in the desert that provides you his water. So that basically just means Leto is expendable and his water, Maurice can take whenever he wants. Right. Maurice, for his part, is understandably concerned that Leto has spotted Shulak. So this butte that they're looking out at is the hidden siege of Shulak, the secret hideaway of the cast out that Maurice is part of. He's also, in very classic superstitious Fremen fashion, just kind of worried that Leto is some sort of demon child. Like, what the fuck is this child doing out here alone, (laughs) having ridden it on a worm, like crossed multiple days of desert by himself? Like, that alone is plenty of red flags to make Marie's concerned. Yeah. So he decides, okay, Leto, you're coming with me. We're headed back to Shulag, where it will be decided what is to be done with you. I am not going to make any decisions here. Right. Which Leto, of course, basically sees right through because he realizes Maurice never intends to take him back to Shulak and totally plans to just basically kill him. Right. So as they step towards the Thopter, Leto reveals to Maurice that he is actually the son of Paul Mwadib and he is the one who escaped captivity from Chakarutu. Yeah. This kind of throws Maurice off kilter for just a second, and that hesitation is exactly the opening that Leto needs to knock the Mala pistol from Maurice's hand and press his Chris knife into his back, basically taking control of the situation.
1: I just wanted to point out here, if you read it carefully, Leto jukes, like he subtly moves. Maurice overcompensates, swings his gun. And knocks it out of his own hand against the ornithopter. (laughs) Like, literally, Leto gets him to disarm himself against the ship and then uses Murese's own Chris knife in catching him. I could not believe this part. I was, I mean, I can believe it because it's Leto Atreides, but holy shit, what an incredible little moment that, I mean, this is the power of, like, weirding combat and reading people and muscular control you know you can basically manipulate their body with your own at a distance. It's incredible. I loved this little moment.
0: It is. It is. It's going to look so good (laughs) on the silver screen.
1: They're never going to make this movie.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I know. They're never going to.
1: Especially for the chapter we're going to talk about soon. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, my God. A man can dream, though. Yeah, it's true.
0: (laughs) So with Chris Knife pressed against Maurice's back, Plato makes his sales pitch basically trying to explain that only he can save the future of Dune's ecological transformation and the very existence of the sandworms. Quote, I know the entire plan of transformation, Leto said. I know every weakness in it, every strength. Without me, Shai Halud will vanish forever. End quote. Uh, This is convincing enough that Maurice is kind of like, okay, maybe I don't, I don't know, maybe I don't kill this guy. Like he, he, He's <laughs> right. saying some things that I really don't want to happen, right? Like Shai Halud is God. They don't want the sandworms to go away. Right. This ecological transformation is obviously changing the face of not only Arrakis, but the entire Fremen culture as well, which as we know, Maurice is one of the cast out who is very much tied to the old ways of Fremen life. So Leto then makes Maurice bite down on his thumb and swallow a drop of blood. And we're told that this is some sort of ritual meant to bind their water and form a truce. Right. Quote, I must offend the tribe before you can take my water. End quote.
1: (laughs) Maurice is like, yeah, true.
0: Right. God damn it. He got me again with a blood thing. (laughs) Fuck. (laughs) Which is totally a trick I'm going to try at my next job. You know, like as soon, as soon as I get that job offer, I'm going to present my thumb.
1: <laughs> I'm sure.
0: I must offend this company before you can fire me.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: And after the blood-thumb ritual of truce, this chapter basically ends as Lawen Marie's head toward the ornithopter
1: headed to Schulockk. Indeed. And we don't have to wait long to find out what happens in Shulok, because chapter fifty, we're in Shulock. Yeah, baby. We made it. What happens in Shulak probably stays in Shulak because you you get killed. <laughs> yeah. So uh uh-huh. or you get eaten by flies or something. <laughs> so Leto is, upon arriving in Shulock, observing how very, very traditional everything is to the point of being not great. <laughs> like the still tents have some inefficiencies, they let bugs in. You know, that there's like, he thinks about how, wow, yeah, at night, you're probably bitten so much by insects, and this is how my father's been living. <laughs> like, this right. is where the god Muad'Dib has been sleeping and hanging out. Not exactly a life of luxury here in Shula. No, no. And as he looks out over this canyon, surrounded by a kanat Muriz explains that Muad'Dib suggested they sell sand trout and worms off-planet. Which, of course, none of them survive and none of them ever will, according to Leto. He's like, it's a good way of making money and not accomplishing anything. (laughs) But I wanted to point out, like, this is wild. Like, we knew that people from the time of Messiah, we knew that people were getting worms off planet. This is a farm. This is a sandworm farm. We are literally seeing the system for growing (laughs) worms for exporting. Like, it's so interesting to me. Very interesting world building here. Nevertheless, they don't hesitate to consider all of this incredible world building. They go to a hut. <laughs> they go to a nearby <laughs> hut. And murius is just like, oh, yeah, there's a girl here, whatever. She's cast out from the from her friends at Giacaruto, and she's been sent here as punishment for allowing you to escape. <laughs> Sucks. Sucks to suck. And he kind of continues to tease and berate and lecture the two people. I just wanted to point out, Leto brings up Kralizek or the Typhoon Struggle, which we are going to talk about in morsels. So be patient on that one. It's Sabiha, the girl in this little hut, is Sabiha, the girl, the girl who makes good coffee. the tough look. His future girlfriend.
0: (laughs) Uh, Maybe. uh, Maybe. In some of
1: the visions. In some of the visions. Some of the visions. They're having a great life together. Yeah. (laughs) Now, Sabiha... Not super stoked to see Leto. She's not like, hey, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> whoa, hey, the child, apparently, I might marry at some point. So she runs to the edge of the canat, distressed, and Leto follows, explaining that he has come to Shulak to find his future, to find his worm. Quote, it will not be as either of you might believe, Leto said. Remember this, muris I have found the footprints of my worm. He felt tears swimming in his eyes then, end quote. And Sabiha and even Maurice, despite his <laughs> hostile attitude, are both shocked at Leto giving water to the dead, right? Right. They are traditional in so many ways. They're like, fuck, he's crying. That's nuts. We haven't seen that in so long. And the chapter ends when Leto promises that the Kralizek will come, and that he will lead them in it. He will, he's like, it's coming. Pray for it. It's going to happen.
0: Yeah. And you can really see how much he's leaning into the religion and superstition in these conversations around Marie's and even around Sabia. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about chapter 51. In this one, we are actually with Namri and Gurney back in Jakarutu. Yeah. And they have just received word from Shulak that Leto has been found. And while you might think this is good news, Gurney is not so sure and demands to be allowed to travel to Mm Shulak himself to see Leto, to confirm this news. Namri denies the request. And this is perhaps the first time we start to realize that these two men are more allies of convenience rather than tight knit partners with a shared goal. Right. Right? Like they just happen to be working together because that's what is convenient for <laughs> right. both of them. But they aren't exactly like buddy buddy ride or die
1: bad boys. They're not life. exactly like throwing back pints of spice beer in between right. lateo drug induced comas. <laughs>
0: <laughs> exactly. Exactly.
1: They're both they're both
0: here to do right. a job. This back and forth leads to a very tense standoff and Namri reveals a bombshell. Yeah. He tells Gurney that he is actually a double agent working for Alia. Uh, quote Namri drew his Chris knife. What do you know of the womb of heaven? I am her servant, you male whore. I do her bidding
1: when I take your water. End quote. All right, all right dude. Damn. Jeez. Namri, chill the yeah. fuck out. Zero to 100, guy. Come on. <laughs>
0: Truly zero to 100, because he then lunges at Gurney Halleck, which is the last mistake anyone will fucking ever make in their life. (laughs) Poor, foolish Namri here, thinking he can take on Gurney motherfucking Halleck in a 1v1. The fight is incredible and quick, and it really shows us Gurney's ability to just jump into action. My guy doesn't miss a beat. He's got this like secret thing in his sleeve that he whips Uh. at. Namri catches him off guard. It's awesome. But anyway, regardless of how cool it is, no one is surprised that our boy Namri just gets absolutely wiped in the first round. And this quote I found so hilarious. I laughed out loud at this. Quote, Halleck addressed the corpse as he recovered the trick sleeve, wiped his knife, and sheathed it. How did you think we Atreides servants were trained, fool? (laughs) End quote.
1: <laughs> yeah. Also, Gurney not even mentioning the shit talking. To- he's teabagging Nomri afterwards, right? Not even mentioning the fact that he got Benny Jesuit training with Jessica on kaladin during uh Messiah, right? Right. She mentions the like Prana Bendu training that she gave him. Yeah. I'm like, he's so fucking overpowered. <laughs> truly, he truly is. He
0: can play a ballaset and also snap your neck with it in a heartbeat. Yeah. Gurney Hallett can do it all, folks. And he can change your light bulbs for you. (laughs) True. So, this scene and this chapter wraps up when Gurney casually strolls out of the room. He's like, play cool, play cool. (laughs) Yeah. And what's interesting is that he's feeling oddly free in this moment after having killed Namri and walked away from the situation. We learned that he was never truly a fan of Jessica's whole drug the nine year old plan which is fair. Strange. None of us are really <laughs> a fan of that.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's true. Joking aside, yeah, it's, it's yeah. fucked up.
0: <laughs> truly, it's truly really fucked up and Gurney's kind of relieved that he no longer has to follow through with plan A. Right. As he's leaving Jockerutu, he's basically figuring out what's next because he knows he has to go into hiding lest Alia find him. She will surely be sending her agents after him and he decides that Perhaps it's time for the backup plan to go into effect—a plan that we don't know the entire scope of yet, but we're told somehow involves Stilgar, and that's yeah. where our chapter ends.
1: It's true. Got so many cliffhangers. Well, here we go. Final warning, folks. <laughs> Buckles secure. You ready? You ready for this? Oh my God. Chapter fifty-two. Huh. We're back in Shulok with Leto and Sabiha, and Leto's ignoring his food. She's like, come on, eat it. He's ignoring her. He's kind of doom-scrolling through his (laughs) infinite visions. Yeah. Quote, his mind sorted the threads. Some held a sweetness which haunted him. One future with Sabiha carried alluring reality within his prescient awareness. It threatened to block out all others until he followed it out to its ending agonies. End quote. (laughs) Jesus. Okay. Now Sabiha is still on this. Please eat the food. Train. Yeah. Please. (laughs) I'm (laughs) gonna get so punished. She's like, I'm just doing my job, kid. I got fucking kicked out of my home the last time. Yeah. And he's like, Nah. I'm const. I'm already so laced with spice. You have no fucking clue. Every moment is a vision. He tells Mm -hmm. her, Mm -hmm. it's insane. So on his way out, he also. Very casually, I missed this three times, but the fourth time I was reading, did you notice he puts her to sleep again? (laughs) So funny.
0: Yeah, just a very
1: subtle use of voice. He starts using the voice, and we don't exactly know why, but then we get this little quote, quote, the pattern of all Fremen lent itself naturally into the way he guided her now. Fremen were people of extraordinary energy at sunrise, but a deep and lethargic melancholy often overcame them at nightfall. Same. Already, same. Already she wanted to sink into sleep and dreams. End quote. And then later he's like, she's stirring restlessly. So fucking funny. Take two. He's like, listen, it's okay, fine. Go to sleep. She's like, okay, I'm tired.
0: (laughs) You'd think she'd be more prepared for it this time. Like, you're (laughs) not you're not gonna
1: hypnosis me this time, motherfucker. She wakes up to gurney. She's like, fuck! (laughs) God did not again. (laughs) oh shit (laughs) oh really savage savage move on his part but he's not done the chapter doesn't end there no 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 he's out by the cannot and he's by the edge of the water and he's thinking about sabiha and we get this sense of his loneliness as a pre-born quesats who (laughs) frankly can't stop seeing infinite visions of the future quote he wondered how it would be to live outside a vision with her sharing each moment just as it came of itself. The thought attracted him far more strongly than had any spice vision. There was a certain cleanliness about facing an unknown future. End quote. Wow. Beautiful writing. I love this. I mean, Frank is doing such a good job of really showing us how tragic all of this is. Now, the sand trout at night, right? He's been warned. The sand trout are going to swarm at night, especially to this cannot that now has its predator fish removed. So they're migrating to the kanat in a swarm. Leto is standing in their path, and sure enough, he told Sabiha, they're not going to eat me. And they don't. One like scuttles over his foot, and he's like, heh, funny. And it kept going because there's more water in the cannot. But uh, <laughs> as this uh, chapter progresses, we get a sense that shit's happening. And uh, sure enough, check your buckles. Yeah, it's happening. Yep. He grabs a sand trout, a big one, as he knew it would be there. He grabs a big sand trout, and it begins stretching over his skin. Quote, no sand trout had ever before encountered a hand such as this one. Every cell super saturated with spice. End quote. And it becomes a living glove stretched out over his skin, right? He grabs another. And as soon as it touches the first one, they sort of like join and link and become one kind of covering. <laughs> and he grabs another one and another one well, and soon but. I know. And they're combining basically to create this skin symbiote is how it's said, covering his body. He He gets naked and lays. In the path of all these sand trout. And as they encounter this growing form, they all join. And it's awful. (laughs) It's so weird sounding. And he literally, at one point, they go to cover his mouth and nose with this membrane. And he has to, like, roll it away from his mouth and nose so he doesn't Uh. (laughs) suffocate to death, I guess. Right. Fucking crazy, right? Yeah. In my mind,
0: I'm picturing this almost like Venom from Spider-Man, right? Like like the black goo that that like right the literal symbiote that covers peter parker's body and gives him the black suit
1: (laughs) you mean in the best spider-man movie spider-man 3 (laughs) yes
0: unapologetically the best spider-man movie spider-man 3 (laughs) what a great movie tom holland who uh yeah i'll stop this bit that's how i imagine this is going down but instead of being like an (laughs) opaque black symbiote I, in my mind, I kind of picture the sand trout as translucent, like sort of see through, like if you yeah. if you had like a see through cover for your iPhone or whatever. That's kind of how I picture this going down.
1: Yeah, I think he talks about them thickening as they're on his body, and he says they will grow stronger as well. So, yeah, I think that's true. Although I think they become probably opaque pretty quick. As more, join in the, the pile, <laughs> <laughs> the gross, horrifying pile. Yeah. I'll also point out there's this really quick takeaway where Leto points out that he could die of spice overdose at any moment if he stops balancing his metabolic balance. Right. And I stopped reading for a moment because I was like, wait, are you telling me this nine-year-old for the last, like, two months has been constantly adjusting his internal biochemistry to not die from overdose. Like yes, that's so That is exactly. Wild. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's nuts. I missed that. Also, <laughs> I mean to be fair, I was distracted by him being covered in sand <laughs> trout. <laughs> yeah. But I digress. It's an incredible uh,
0: little sentence in there and it yeah. explains to us why this is a unique occurrence. Like right. we are told that <laughs> right. children play with sand trap all the time and they make these fake gloves and then yeah. let them go and the sand trap, you know, sw- swim away or whatever. Right. That, that's normal. Like the Fremen children make a game of playing with these sand trap. None of them are making symbiotic skin <laughs> that is not their right. own that covers them and gives them superpowers. The reason this works for Leto is because his visions have shown him what he must do here to trigger that. And also because his Benny Gesserit training and his genes, his like special Atreides genetic makeup, his had reckness. all of that has given him the ability to contain this like overdose level of spice within his body without dying. And that is part of what triggers this transformation of the Sand Trout, not just stopping at becoming a glove, but continuing to mold and grow and attach to him.
1: Right. Yeah. And this horrifying transformation, by the way, is all part of his plan. Mm -hmm. He said a few times, he's like, I got to do bold things. Well, yeah. (laughs) Well, nothing's as bold as covering yourself in living tissue. This is for the sake of humanity's future. And we get this quote, quote, no corner of his attention was left to dwell upon the terrifying consequences of what he did here. Only the necessities of his trance vision mattered. Only the golden path could come from this ordeal. End quote. Hmm. So abandoning humanity. And you might be asking yourself, why? <laughs> what does this do? Well, we start to get a sense of what this has accomplished a little bit. Cause he stands up, immediately stumbles over and falls. Right. <laughs> he stood up too quick. He like topples. Now after a few tries. He gets used to kind of standing, and this is kind of like, I see this as like a walking montage, you know? Steve Rogers, right, post-Super Soldier Serum. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> Learning how to use his strength. Or even like Iron Man with the jet gloves. Yeah, right? like yeah. You just see the the <laughs> the like super cut of him fucking up over and over mm-hmm, again. Mm-hmm. But eventually, Leto is running. He's flying. He like jumps 20 meters vertically. <laughs> like... We talked way back with Jason Concepcion about our basketball team. Going to leave it at that. (laughs) Power center. (laughs) This kid can dunk from three basketball courts away. It's phenomenal. (laughs) But he is running around. He's jumping. And now it's time to test another part of his vision. So he leaps past the cannot into the canyon where this young, restless worm is kind of lurking about. And the worm comes up drawn by his rhythm the rhythm of his arrival and the worm fucking stops yeah just stops and it's like what what do you want me to do with this this is sand trout we talked about in the mailbag sand worms are basically sand trout so it's not going to attack the like basic form of itself right and we even get this little quote that because they encapsulate water there's this encapsulation of them The worm's like, I don't want water inside of me. Are you kidding me? It'll kill me. Yeah. I also wanted to point out, for context, quote, no one had ever before stood this close to a mouth of a living worm and survived, end quote. We're witnessing history here. It's wild. Wild. And (laughs) know who else is witnessing history? Oh, my God. Sabiha, (laughs) who walks out. She's up from her nap. She woke up from her nap. Also, she's like, Where are you going to go? He's like, The cannot to like figure shit out. She's like, All right. She comes out. He's like, I figured shit out. <laughs> he's like running around, jumping around the worm. He shows her. He's like, Look, it obeys me. I'm a god. Right. Oh my and God. Just running around. She's got to be having the worst night. <laughs> and he leaves the canyon. Basically, he just jumps and climbs and scampers out of this canyon and looks out over the tanza roof as he experiments with his new skin. Now, we're learning about this as he is, but basically the sand trout membrane is acting as effectively like a natural, super effective, perfect stillsuit, preserving his body's moisture with almost no loss at all, like zero loss even in the deep desert, which is pretty nuts. And Leto, not wasting a moment, jumps off of the 200-meter-high canyon wall. He gets down via a series of enormous leaps, but these are like 10, 20, 30, 40-meter jumps and drops. Unbelievable. I mean, the thing that he's capable of doing now with this suit is incredible. And he's rushing now to face his future. Quote, Ahead lay the trap in time and space, which had been prepared as an unforgettable lesson for himself and all of mankind end quote
0: we're on the golden path baby
1: we're on the golden path baby first up breaking shit yes (laughs) i know it's everyone's demolition day (laughs) we're gonna do some property damage (laughs) yeah he basically is like i'm gonna go break a bunch of canuts i'm gonna pour their water into the sand let it get dissolved and captured by sand trout he basically sets himself to slow down and partially reverse the ecological transformation by a generation all in the sake of buying some time he's like i need time to get what i want to get done done so let's break some shit yeah now the chapter ends this wild ride of a chapter ends as he thinks about his sister and father He mouths to himself the words that will restore Ganema's memory, right? This deep compulsion. My bet's on pineapple. (laughs) It's kind of a (laughs) go-to. Could also be Worcestershire sauce, because it's so hard to say, and no one one. knows how to say it, so it won't happen accidentally. (laughs) And his final thoughts are of his father. Quote, soon we'll dispute as man to man, and only one vision will emerge. End quote.
0: Oh snap!
1: <laughs> oh shit! Yeah. Oh, I can't wait for this cage match showdown on NBC primetime. Yeah, yeah, for it's real. gonna be a pay-per-view mono a mono, well mono a wormo. <laughs> yeah, it's gonna be great. Can't wait. Yeah,
0: what cool foreshadowing there! Sounds like we're headed towards a showdown between father and son. Yeah between both Queezat's Hatterax. Okay, let's wrap up today's reading with one more chapter. Chapter 53 is a short one. We are back in the keep with Alia and the Baron. It is early in the pre-dawn hours, and Alia is reviewing reports of, what do you know, smashed canots and attacks on sieges over the past three months. Hmm. So...
1: <laughs> I wonder... Who the fuck did that? <laughs> <laughs> Who could that be? Was it that guy Faradin? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Alia assumes this must obviously be the work of those rebel Fremen, right? Arrakis is on the verge mm. of a civil war between the old Fremen and the new. It's got to be those pesky old Fremen continuing to bother her. Couldn't possibly be her superpowered half worm nephew. <laughs> totally not superstitions about these attacks and about these canats being smashed are proliferating like wildfire in the desert and among the fremen everyone is reading into these omens and reading into what they could mean right and in this section we get a sense of truly just how isolated and paranoid alia has become because we learn that for one she regrets trusting Namri and doesn't believe any of Maurice's reports of what has gone down in Shulock. So, in sort of a one-two punch, we learn that these two are basically spies for her, that she basically has agents all over. Namri and Maurice are two of them, but she doesn't trust them. We also learned that in these past three months, this is a bit of a time jump from the last chapter, she hasn't been able to locate Gurney, so our guy's doing well, staying undercover. and that she now suspects that Stilgar has gone over to the rebels, to the rebel Fremen, that he has become an enemy. And finally, we learn that she hasn't communicated directly with Duncan or Irulan, who are still on neutral ground in Siege to Burr. And part of that neutrality is that they're not allowed to send messages out. They're only allowed to receive messages. And the only updates she has about what's going on in Tabur, it's implied that is through her spy network. That's the only way she's sort of in the know on what's going on. There is one thing that is going her way, though, in this whole mess. Faradin had sent some of his Sardikar to, quote, help you in troubles and to prepare the way for the official rite of betrothal, end quote. Mm. That means the wedding... Is still on, baby.
1: <laughs> oh, it's exciting, Mazeltov! <laughs> no one's excited.
0: But not a single soul. Nope. But at least her plan with Farad and Kanima and the whole wedding scheme—that still seems to be going her way, in the face of all these other things not going her way. Right. It's at this moment that the Baron chooses to speak up, and he asks her if she intends to ask Farad to return Lady Jessica, and. Alia basically brushes that concern aside. She's like, no, of course, that would be way too dangerous to have Lady Jessica around here again. I don't want her back. Right. Horny Baron then completely pivots the conversation and starts asking about that young aide where Agarv is. Should we maybe invite him over tonight, Alia? Like, what, what are your thoughts? <laughs> yeah. Some wine, yeah. like some candles, maybe some chocolate dipped strawberries.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: She is not in the mood, though. Alia outright refuses. And we get an absolutely terrifying moment here because we are given a glimpse into how much the Baron's influence has grown these past months. It's not just a mental thing anymore. He can literally affect her physically. Here's the quote. Quote, A slow pain crept upward from her left cheek into her skull. Once he'd sent her raging down the corridors with this trick. Now she resolved to resist him. End quote. He's giving her migraines. Yeah, that's, that is fucked up.
1: <laughs> that's fucked up. It's so visceral. Yeah. Too. Like that idea of her having to like literally run around in pain just to get away from it. Yeah. Awful.
0: It's awful. And We can see how much the Baron's power and influence is growing within her. This short chapter then ends as Alia threatens to literally take a sedative if the Baron persists, right? She has said no. She means no. Now is not the time. Don't make me take a sedative and basically make us both fall asleep, I guess, is the implied threat here. This basically forces the Baron's hand, and he's like, all right, all right, okay, okay. He backs off on Operation Fuck Where Agarvis, and they (laughs) both agree, quote, another time end quote. Right. And that's where our reading and this chapter ends for today. Dark stuff.
1: Oh, indeed. Man, what a a collection of chapters. (laughs) Truly. Well, we've got some takeaways to talk about, but before we get into them, we're going to take another quick break. So stick around. When we're back, we're going to talk about our key takeaways.
0: All right, folks, welcome back. Hope y'all have steered clear of any sand trout in the vicinity. Let's talk about our key takeaways from today's reading. To start off, for our first takeaway, we got to talk about this whole Leto situation. <laughs> Leto's yeah, sure. skin that has not his own. Right. This is huge, right? Like Next to the preacher being Paul, this is probably the other biggest revelation in this book leto merging his body with this sand trout symbiote becoming this inhuman superpowered being all in service of achieving his golden path and in service of saving humanity yeah what's incredible about this is just how much frank has basically been telling us exactly this has been telling uh us this is exactly (laughs) what will happen. Uh The foreshadowing on a reread honestly feels so on the nose that it's hilarious.
1: Yeah, you're like, I'm sure every new reader of this book is going to exactly call what's going to happen. Right,
0: right. (laughs) So for this takeaway, what we wanted to do was revisit some of those visions and some of that foreshadowing from earlier in the book. And then also debrief a bit about exactly what powers Leto has gained from this transformation, because some of that foreshadowing from earlier clues us in on those powers as well.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, this has been the hardest thing not to talk about <laughs> for the <laughs> yeah. last, I don't know, 10 episodes right. of this book club. Right. But like, okay, here's an example. Chapter six, right? Sixth chapter. I think it was even in our first episode. Yes, within maybe, the first 50 pages. Within the first 50 pages, quote, I've dreamed myself enclosed in armor and racing across the dunes, he said, and I've been to Jakarutu, and
0: quote. (laughs) I mean, somebody put a spoiler warning ahead of that or something?
1: (laughs) It's wild. He's like, he's like, listen, Kanima, I've read chapter 52 of this book. (laughs) She's like, wow, is that going to happen in my lifetime? He's like, yeah, it's going to happen in like... 600 pages. It's going to be great. I mean, he makes multiple, numerous references to armor early on in the book, right? There's this other quote. He's talking to Ganema, discussing his troubling visions and the golden path. Quote, I realize then that my skin is encased in something, an armor which moves as my skin moves. I cannot see this armor, but I feel it. My terror leaves me then for this armor gives me the strength of 10,000 men <laughs> quote. Oh my god and you're like yeah we just read chapter 52 that must be from chapter 57 no it's chapter 13 holy shit frank's just been telling us shit this whole time <laughs> and part of this is also when we finished reading this book this this portion of this book all I wanted to do was talk about this worm transformation chapter. So, part of what we're doing also is just let's celebrate how fucking weird this is, but also how it is sort of breadcrumbed leading up to the moment. Right. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. Like, in addition to those references to armor, for example, right. All throughout the book, Leto is describing feeling, quote unquote, skin that is not his own. He repeats that <sighs> okay, phrase yeah. over and over. And that repetition so much. Yeah. So much. And that repetition happens most often once Gurney and Namory force him into the spice trances. For example, right. quote, but he felt no pain and he saw the cuts heal as rapidly as they appeared. Still, he rolled with a wind, and his skin was not his own. End quote.
1: That's so crazy. That is incredible. So
0: like I said earlier, on a reread. This book is such yeah. a treat because these little right. lines in his visions, in his conversations with Ganema, in the first fucking 50 pages of the book, all of these casual, seemingly throwaway lines suddenly yeah. become these really incredible ways that Frank is making the reader experience prescient visions alongside Leto. Right. Frank is just telling us, yo, this is happening in chapter 52. I'm telling you now in chapter six. <laughs> that is us, yeah. the reader, experiencing a flash of prescient vision. It's
1: super cool. It's amazing. Now, even as Frank is sort of teasing us very early on about this insane chapter that no one could see coming, we do have to kind of wonder what the transformation means for Young Lee to Atreides. Right. Like, what powers does it give him? What, what is this enabling? Like, what part of the golden path is this? And what even is the golden path still? We don't really know. And, of course, Frank is too subtle of a writer to just, like, list out the powers, right? We're not getting a shopping list of Leto unlocked achievements. You know, he's not getting this bullet-pointed list of powers. So, we have to kind of gather the clues sprinkled throughout. And we actually already mentioned one, right? Yeah. He says in that chapter 13 quote that we just shared, quote, my terror leaves me then for this armor gives me the strength of 10,000 men, end quote. So super strength. And we see from how fast he is, super speed, unbelievable. And whether this is, you know, there is that quote that I mentioned about the armor, the symbiote skin, the worm skin starting off getting stronger and would be even stronger still. He says, so we don't know if this is like this moment, like this chapter 52 moment, or if this is going to happen a little later. It's a little hard to say. Again, Frank is subtle in the way he's kind of guiding us through this.
0: Right. Or a lot of later, because <laughs> we can yeah, also true. reasonably assume from the clues throughout this book that this sandworm suit is going to make Lay to live for a very long time. Presumably thousands of years. Recall yeah. all the way back in his one-on-one <laughs> quarterly review with Jessica earlier in the book. Oh my God! Yeah, this. he says, "quote oh. <laughs> Do I choose another course, one which would permit me to live thousands of years?" End quote.
1: <laughs> and Jessica, <laughs> that idiot who hasn't read chapter fifty-two, Boo. is like, "No, not Benny Jesuit metabolic control." Uh-huh. He's like.
0: <laughs> so funny his response to that is hilarious quote yeah oh that he dismissed benny Jesuit body balance with a wave of his hand <laughs> i'm speaking of something else a perfection of being far beyond anything humans have ever before achieved end quote
1: oh my god i mean also to be fair though it does seem like he's using the metabolic control as part of that so come on give her right. that like she kind of, she called a piece of it. Yeah. Now
0: he's, he's also being a bit of a dick here, but yeah, <laughs> it's amazing that all the way back in that conversation, that little line gives us a huge clue as to a power that this worm suit gives him long life, thousands of years, potentially.
1: Yeah. And you might wonder, Hey, yeah, sure. So he can live for a thousand years, but what if you stab him? Uh, what uh-huh, if you, uh, uh-huh. what if you shoot him with a mola pistol? Right. right. One of those was in this book right. just now. Well, it does seem from one of the intro little excerpt chapter starter things, written by Ganema, as it turns out, it does seem like he may or may not be invincible <laughs> to <laughs> oh most my God. to most things. Yeah. <laughs> Here's the quote. Quote, the armor was not his own skin. It was stronger than plasteel. Nothing penetrated his armor not knife or poison or sand not the dust of the desert or its desiccating heat end quote amazing so he's not going to get wormed right we see he's immune to worm attack he was already immune to poison because of Benny desert metabolic control right. like he can disarm poisons yep. easy peasy so what the fuck do you do <laughs> like oh it's so interesting so we'll just have to kind of see how that plays out. Yeah. This kid's sturdy. He's he's Ford tough. He's built Ford tough.
0: <laughs> he's built Ford tough for <laughs> sure. Yeah. You can't poison a Ford F-150 either. <laughs> I've, I've tried. tried. <laughs> I've
1: tried. <laughs> Jinx. <laughs>
0: of course, on top of the invincibility, we see in today's reading, too, that it acts as a super still suit and, of course, a great deterrent against worms. We also see that it gives him the ability to sort of like swim through the sand in a worm-like fashion? <laughs> Pro- probably yeah. thanks to that super strength and the nature of the armor protecting him against sand and dust, as Ghanima says.
1: Right, right.
0: Quote, When he judged that Ornithopter's occupants had overcome their shock enough to mount pursuit once more, he dove for the moon-shadowed face of a dune, burrowed into it. The sand was like heavy liquid to his new strength, But the temperature mounted dangerously when he moved too fast. He broke free on the far face of the dune. End quote. So there he is like testing out his powers and his strength and how much he can push this new armor to withstand. And it seems like he can sort of like dive through the dunes and swim through the sand.
1: Right. I mean, it's so interesting because we hear about this sort of like furnace of the sandworms caused by the friction with the sand. But Leto's, like, straight-up first-person experience. He's like, oh, it gets pretty hot when you're, like, shooting through the sand. Totally nuts. Hard to even begin to picture. This is really the section that makes this book hard to adapt. Like, you have, a what, a nine-year-old who's, like, gets covered in sand. I mean, maybe an animated, it could be animated, maybe. Hard to do as live action, I think.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it could be animated, considering I'm watching a show where... A dude has a chainsaw in his face
1: yeah no spoilers for episode three so yeah, yeah, yeah same
0: yeah i think with animation we can make anything believable but this would be a tough sell in live action you're right so to wrap up this first takeaway about leto his skin the foreshadowing we do have to acknowledge that this transformation is not all sunshine and daisies and super strength right right leto himself ominously hints in today's reading that this transformation makes him not entirely human and that he will continue to evolve even further over that extended thousands of year lifespan. Quote, Already he could feel how far he'd drifted from something recognizably human. Seduced by the spice which he gulped from every trace he found, the membrane which covered him no longer was sand trapped, just as he was no longer human. Cilia had crept into his flesh, forming a new creature, which would seek its own metamorphosis in the eons ahead. End quote. Ugh. Uh, just reading that yeah. paragraph makes my skin crawl. This thing is not just a suit that he's putting on. It is fusing with his body and changing him. Right. And so we must acknowledge at the end of this takeaway that the superpowers are cool. The super strength. The extended lifespan. But much like all things in Dune, and of course all things in real life, things come with a cost. And nothing is just a pure positive or a pure negative. There's benefits to fusing with Sandtrap, and there are definitely drawbacks as well here.
1: It's true. Well, that takes us to our second takeaway today, where we wanted to talk about kind of Fremen superstition. Mm-hmm. And we wanted to talk about some of what we've seen with Muris and with Namri and some of these, Jockerudu and Sherlock Fremen, basically. Right. And in this episode's reading, it's super on display. So let's take a moment, let's examine Fremen culture and kind of the ways in which the forces of the Imperium have played their part in shaping that nature.
0: Totally. And I think to start... (laughs) <laughs> we have to just address the elephant in the room before we can go any further. Yeah. Obviously, the first two books, Dune and Dune Messiah, are very much about Paul's rise to power. And right. we've had discussions about how the missionaria Prosectiva planted these myths about the Lisan Al-Gaib. Yeah. And that very directly led to Paul's godhood. And we've discussed this. At length in previous book clubs and deep dive episodes, but the long and short of it is that the Benny Gesserit basically planted the seed that Paul then watered for his own gain. Right. This led him straight to the throne by the end of the first book. Recall this extremely telling conversation between Paul and Jessica from the first book where his mother is basically expressing her concerns about how much the Fremen are starting to revere Paul to follow him unconditionally. Sure. And if you don't mind doing a little role play. Oh, yeah. 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 Can you be Jessica? I'll be Paul.
1: Yeah, I'll be Jessica. (laughs)
0: That's exactly the voice. Nailed it. (laughs) (laughs) Quote, religion unifies our forces. It's our mystique.
1: You deliberately cultivate this air, this bravura. You never cease indoctrinating. Thus you yourself taught me.
0: End quote, end scene. (laughs)
1: Sassy, sassy. So
0: sassy and so on point. And I think the word indoctrinating in particular stands out to me there, right? Fair. Like we've talked about how Paul is not your traditional hero. He's the protagonist of our story, but he's not exactly a net positive on the Fremen. And very clearly here, Jessica is stating what he is doing. He is manipulating and indoctrinating the Fremen using their religion and their mystique and their superstitions against them for his own means to exact his revenge against the harkonnens to take back his throne
1: right and you know by the time we reached children of dune from that indoctrination from that period of onboarding so many people <laughs> to his cause and then 61 billion deaths later the fremen and their culture have dramatically evolved since those days of right. the desert right the young Fremen are so beautiful this year. Those water fat asses. <laughs> those water fat asses. <laughs> Sorry, I, I, I can't hear you, Stilgar, over the clap of those water fat asses. <laughs> uh, you'll have to speak up. <laughs> <gasps> <gasps> but but like mostly the men, <laughs> so much cake on those Fremen men, it's crazy. Damn. It's damn.
0: <laughs> Paul introduced twerking into Fremen culture? That's like a net positive as far as I'm concerned.
1: You have to twerk without rhythm, though, oh. to, keep the, to stay safe. Girl, you're twerking without rhythms attracting this worm. Hello. God. Oh, we, we have to keep this episode moving. Too fun. Too much fun. Okay. However, we do see multiple times in Children of Dune how these kind of old Fremen are still clinging to their superstitions and traditions, which, as it turns out, as it was before, is still being used against them. Yeah. You know, Namri is like, yo, what up, child? Here's a riddle game for you. And Leto survives thanks to how he answers. But how does he answer? Well, he looks back on his knowledge of the superstitions and like, the basis of a lot of the Fremen teachings, and he's like I'm going to use my knowledge to get out of this alive. And right. you, you know, there was some debate as to exactly what answer was being looked for, and he kind of maybe got out of it. I don't know. Point is it's this pattern that starts to emerge, especially with Muris, who like finds Leto out in the desert, and Leto's like let me let him think I'm a demon child for a minute. And now let me like reference this old game that I know he's going to know. And then let me create an opportunity to get the upper hand here by leveraging the identity of my father, the god (laughs) Muad'Dib. Like it's this very quick recognition of this person is deeply superstitious. Hell, let me get my blood into his system. So he cannot kill me without me first doing something to justify that. Mm -hmm. That is such a leverage of those old beliefs and old structures that, very importantly, Leto himself is not subservient to, right? Like, Leto doesn't share these belief systems, so his using them in these conversations leaves a kind of a bad taste in my mouth, at least. Yeah. It's very manipulative, right?
0: It is, right. It's Leto surviving another life and death situation, right? The riddle game with, with Namri was life and death. Right. And he starts reciting like Fremen law at Namri because he knows Namri is old fashioned. He's a sucker for that shit. With Marie's, he similarly references things like the story of the waif or something called the test of the Mashad, which is some sort of spiritual test, right? He, he's saying all the correct things that he knows an old fashioned Fremen of the desert would still be deeply superstitious about or still be deeply religious about. And as you're saying, it is this form of manipulation to survive, much like his father, right? Like Paul used the legend of the al Gaib to enter Fremen society and then to become their prophet and to lead them. And Leto here is very much telling Marie's things that are similar to that, you know, Kralizek will come and I will lead it. And Marie's, as we can assume, is someone who believes Kralizek is a real thing and is deeply religious about it. And so when this little nine-year-old demon child is telling him it's going to happen, of course, he's going to be superstitious. Yeah. Now, looking back at Fremen history, it makes a lot of sense when you consider where they come from and how they've come to this point in the story why they would be such a religious and superstitious group of people if you've listened to our complete history of the fremen episodes way back in the feed then you already know that the fremen are descendants of this long persecuted group of religious conservatives known as the Zensuni wanderers right and long story short this group eventually finds its way to arrakis where it becomes deeply isolationist to avoid further persecution at the hands of the Imperium. They have been murdered and forcibly removed from planets and persecuted time and time again by the Sardaukar, by the Empire, by whoever's boot they are being crushed under at that moment. Arrakis is where they decide, okay, we're completely locking ourselves off from the Imperium. Right. So these Zensuni eventually become the modern day Fremen that we meet in the first book. And, and knowing that the Fremen originate from a culture that was already sort of fringe, religiously speaking, and is now finding itself hiding on one of the most brutal planets in the galaxy, you can kind of see how these factors would combine to create these deep roots in religion and this deep-seated superstition and mystique. It's part of their survival. It's part of their rich history and where they came from. And then you add in (laughs) the extra wrinkle of the Bene Gesserit infiltrating and planting ideas from the Missionaria (laughs) Protectiva. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, you just get this perfect pressure cooker of deep religious beliefs and harsh survival out in the desert. and myth-making ideology thanks to the Bene Gesserit. sure it's this perfect storm that creates this culture that we come to know in the books and the very culture that paul and then in children of dune leto manipulate for their own survival but also for their own means and their own ends
1: right right
0: the dune encyclopedia summarizes this very well quote given the fremen's roots in such a religion and the particularly life-threatening environment that Iraq has afforded them the fremen developed a set of cultural institutions unique in their perfect balance between the philosophical worldview demanded by fremen faith and the harsh reality imposed by iraqus's nature end quote yeah so looking back at their history it's not surprising that Maurice acts the way he does being such an old-fashioned fremen it's also not surprising that Stilgar at the start of this book is like conflicted, right? Because he
1: yeah, totally. is
0: like a boomer Fremen, right? He was raised in these old-fashioned <laughs> yeah. beliefs and religions and superstitions and mystique. And the only thing that pulled him out of it was working for Paul, basically.
1: Well, it's even more tiered than that. Because recall that you're looking at Stilgar's history, he was one of the young knaves who overthrew the old napes? who were yeah. like, who's this fucking Pardo and Liet kinds? this idea of a green Arrakis, that's hashtag not my Arrakis. Right? <laughs> so, I mean, you're totally right. Like, there are these ancient roots that managed to live in isolation with the guild and the smugglers' cooperation, in isolation for quite a while. And... As far as I can tell, pretty happily. I mean, it's not a great survival, but they yeah. like catch scorpions and shit. I don't know. It's like a yeah. you know they have fun. They make gloves out of <laughs> leather, fish, sand things. So whereas someone like Mures is like a, I don't know, a millennial. <laughs> he's like a or a disgruntled baby boomer. Stilgar is also not exactly modern, but he's more modern. Than yeah. even the more common guys. Remember, Stilgar was freaked out when he found out that the preacher counted using old, the old numerical system of the ancient Fremen. Right? Yeah. He's like, fuck, no one counts with those numbers anymore. <laughs> those are Kachuan <laughs> They're from <laughs> like the language of the actual Andes. But yeah. it's, you know, there there's this stratosphere, but it's all precipitated by the Kynzes, meet the Kynzes. And then the Atreides, right, these off-worlders coming in and changing stuff. It's it's so interesting and poignant to keep in mind as we yeah, go through this series.
0: For sure. And actually, I'm glad you brought that up because to wrap up this takeaway, I wanted to briefly step out of the lore for a second uh, and and actually share an opinion that I, I have voiced on this podcast before, but this felt like an apt time to kind of get into it a little further. Sure. I've always kind of had an issue with the Fremen being portrayed in this way as this like zealously religious and superstitious and gullible people as a culture. And it's interesting because you and I don't see eye to eye on this hundred percent. So that's sure. always fun. It's a rare occurrence on this podcast. <laughs> and It always yeah. leads to some fun conversation. Right. The way I see it, this like Fremen gullibility and superstition And hyper religious culture feels to me kind of one note and tropey. Sure. In a lot of Western stories, the default is to assume that the quote unquote barbarians or whatever are hyper religious and uneducated and thus are susceptible to manipulation. And this trope obviously leans into this like very problematic view that indigenous people are dumb because they're not part of quote-unquote cultured society, right? right. They're, not, they're not part of the masses, so they must be lesser than us. Sure. We see this manipulation all throughout the Dune novels of the Fremen, some of the examples we've discussed just now. And the issue that I have with it is that this level of gullibility and manipulation doesn't happen with any other characters or factions in the Dune saga. It's always people like the Atreides or the Bene Gesserit doing the manipulation and the Fremen falling for it. People like Maurice being like, oh fuck, he did the thumb blood thing on me. You know? <laughs> it's yeah. never the other way around. Sure. It also doesn't help that there's undertones of the Fremen here clearly being the quote unquote foreign culture. Sure. That is very brown coated. We've talked many times about. The Arabic influences in the way they speak and in their religion, and then on the flip side, the forces of the Imperium are very Western and white-coated, right? The Atreides are these like white people, a house of power. The Harconas in the movie are portrayed as these bald, pale-skinned people. So that's like my primary issue with the Fremen constantly being portrayed in this way, uh, like they start off this way in the first book, and even here by the third book, they have evolved, but we still see them being duped, basically, by people who are continuing to manipulate their beliefs and their religion and their superstitions. Obviously, as we've discussed just now in this takeaway, there's very solid in-universe lore reasons for the Fremen behaving the way they do and for their culture having evolved the way it has. All of that is really great world building and it paints a very nuanced picture of the Fremen. And of course, you know, I appreciate that. That's why I love Dune so much. But I think it's still important to call out these like biases or these tropes when I see them. Like, even in good storytelling, you're not going to avoid falling into some of these pitfalls. And again, Dune is a product of its time. So it's impossible to hold it up to a 2022 level of wokeness, to a 2022 level of. Standard culturally, but it's still to me important to have these conversations because when I read the books, this is all front and center for me. You know, like I can't help but roll my eyes when the Fremen are the dumb people that get tricked by the smarter forces of the Imperium once again. But I'm curious what you think of this as well because this is all very much subjective on my part, right? Like none of this uh, is—I'm not claiming any of this is
1: fact. (laughs) Yeah. Well, no, and and honestly, like you know, I saw this point that you wrote out, and certainly I have my thoughts. I think that's a great caveat to all of this. Like Neither of us are going to stumble upon the absolute truth of the matter. And I think that you've <laughs> made achieve
0: some- achieve nirvana or something. And and... Yeah. Oops, <laughs> enlightenment, <laughs> episode 10 of the book club. Hear it here
1: live. No, and I think that you have brought up some points that really do need to be said and scream from the rooftops every time we have a chance. Because you mentioned like 2022 wokeness. But we still deal with this, like, white as default assumption in Western literature. Yeah. Like, unless a character is, a, is specifically identified as something other than white, a lot of people will just assume whiteness, which is kind of a problem. Yeah. Now, I, I think we all kind of have the uh, implicit expectation of, like, the characters that we're reading. We kind of see ourselves in them. So as a white guy, I don't know that that's going to change anytime soon for me. Uh <laughs> just because that's how, like, subconscious bias works. It's like, Mm -hmm. you know, I see the protagonist as me until I'm told, it's like, and he's a giant black man. I'm like, oh, (laughs) (laughs) I'm not that, (laughs) you know. But I think talking to, specifically Dune, you're talking about, like, the Fremen getting duped. But at least in these two examples, I don't see many examples of... General Imperium people tricking Fremen. Again, we meet Murius as he's like assassinating just random (laughs) off-worlders who were brought here on like a tourist trip, you know? Mm -hmm. The one who tricks him is Leto II Atreides, a literal prescient deity who's like, I'm going to convince you I'm worth leaving alive. And you're right that he leans into that mysticism and the tradition and as i said that he doesn't share those beliefs is problematic like when you're using superstitious beliefs but not you know it's like guys who learn astrology just to pick up chicks it's like <laughs> mm, that's Plato's hmm. <laughs> like don't kill me i'm a virgo <laughs> muris is like oh my god oh i'm a I'm cancer a scorpio, <laughs> uh, scorpio. <laughs> yeah. He's like, I knew that about you from the second I thought, I saw you. Oh, my God. You being out here alone, total Virgo behavior. Yeah. So I think that is problematic. But I would say broadly, the thing that I'm missing here that I think would really be the nail in the coffin of this matter is I do not see Frank condemning the Fremen's belief systems. I don't see Frank saying the Fremen are uncultured or uncivilized or unintelligent. I don't see him demonstrating that in his story because you're right that all of these like white-coated, Western-coated cultures like House Atreides and like the Bene Gesserit and the men, you know, all of these, they're all manipulating fucking everyone. Manipulation and politicking is their bread and butter. It's what they're doing from the moment they wake up to the moment they go to sleep. And no one's fucking happy. Everyone's right. dying. The Bene Gesserit are taking massive loss after massive loss, and they've been manipulating everyone in the Imperium for 20,000 years, 10,000 years. So the idea, I almost see this as a demonstration of, look how fucking twisted and awful, quote-unquote modern, quote-unquote civilized people are. And then you have characters like Stilgar, who's like, oh, man, I don't want to deal with these fucking idiots anymore. Like, he's so exhausted by all of this. And we see, in some ways, the degradation of, of Fremen culture which is sad because the loss of any culture is sad. But I almost see this as like Frank condemning everybody and a lot of the qualities of these perhaps easily manipulated people are really positive ones. And I don't see like a clear pointed condemnation of this sort of like barbaric naivete, right? I kind of see this Mures and Leto meeting as this juxtaposition of opposing ways of life certainly murius is brutal he's more or less telling things how it is (laughs) he calls him a drinkable little melon the (laughs) first thing he says to him he's like hey you're super killable honor bound (laughs) leto's blood's in his system and he's like fuck okay can't do anything about that and he is susceptible to this sort of mystic manipulation but then we have leto Who's constantly scheming? He's politicking. He's a manipulator. And the people in the Lance Rad, all across the board are constantly trying to just manipulate people around them. There are these like obvious ethnic codings, but I actually got a question recently about like people were like, I don't see the ethnic coding. And I'm like, um, <laughs> I don't think you I don't think you can read Dune and miss the like very clear cultural and ethnic coding. Of these different cultures. Yeah. I will point out, though, this is so pervasive. This, like, whitest default thing is so pervasive. <laughs> Did you recall this, by the way? Duke Leto Atreides, beautiful beard, is described as having, quote, dark skin that made Jessica think of olive groves and golden sun on blue waters, end quote. I forget that he's described as having dark olive skin complexion. And granted, we know that they are from Greek, you know, origins, but, and this is to your point, I think I forget that because House Atreides is so clearly coded Western and so clearly coded white. So like, despite any efforts Frank may have made to be like, no, House Atreides are like Mediterranean Greek, like dark-skinned people. Jessica is described as being fair-skinned, but whatever efforts he made are not enough. <laughs> or like they, they didn't do enough to actually disarm any of these very valid conversations that we get to have about this stuff. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I don't know. I, I think the only reason I don't see this as that kind of one note trope that you're talking about, the sort of uncivilized barbarian, is because really uninterfered with by Westerners, they were vibing. They were having a great time. They were. And it's only when Western people get involved that shit gets wrecked and that the planet's being destroyed. The Literally, the Imperium is being destroyed by Liet Kynes' plan, by Pardo Kynes' plan. Like, it is almost exclusively Westerners, Western-coded people, fucking up everything. And I see this as almost, Frank, condemning this perceived progress away from, you know even less like like more traditional superstitious is kind of judgmental as a term but like spiritual not everything's black and white man like everything's gray i think the idea of no let's let's make sure everything's clean and strict and we're going to control everything i think he's saying no we need this golden path out of the stagnation of western colonialism (laughs) basically I don't know. I think I'm stretching to a little, a few places, but that that was kind of my my sense through this. I think yeah. that we do need to continue talking about this stuff, and I think that that you know, all, books still being written today have like super problematic handlings of race, especially with tokenism on the rise and this idea of like, no, my book's good. Uh, yeah, I have a black friend. <laughs> yeah, like, right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> or even yeah i made my character olive skinned so i can't be like right got my got my bases tropes. covered yeah right
0: you know i i so, woke yeah. leftist bulletproof come at me yeah totally
1: yeah. i've got yeah, plasteel leftist woke skin that is not my own covering my body
0: exactly exactly yeah does his does leto skin protect him from mean twitter comments because i hope it does
1: He's, he would die. This is his only weakness: his mean Twitter comments. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. No, as always, this has led to a really fun discussion. I think you've made some really great points, and mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I agree with a lot of what you've said. Like we've talked many times on this podcast, how well Frank handles Fremen culture and the Islamic and Arabic inspirations. How much research he's done. How he treats it with respect. That is all, here in the books as well, and part of why the books are so good. Yeah. So it's certainly not an extreme case of an author treating this like outside culture as just like dumb barbarians.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, He he
0: certainly treats them with respect, but you know those like (laughs) inherent biases and (laughs) and that like white as default, right? Like there's a there's a spectrum there, and some of those biases and defaults are just like things. A white man in the sixties and seventies can't turn off or like doesn't know right. know about right like again can't exactly hold it to a modern day standard, but all really important conversations and I'm glad we can have them on this podcast. Always so fun.
1: We'll also probably you know we've talked about doing a more meta episode about Frank Herbert's life. Depending on when you're hearing this episode, maybe it's out already, but uh, we've talked about that and I think that would also be a good place to look at. Just legitimately, what do we know about the people Frank surrounded himself with? I mean, these days, if you're like a white author writing a book about people of varying cultures and and diversity, I would hope that you have people you talk to and people that you surround yourself with who can make sure that you're not falling into these very easy like subconscious pitfalls, because a lot of it is not malicious. It's just people being ignorant. Right, right. All it takes is like, yeah, if you're talking about like... I don't know South American culture. Talk to a South American person and be like, "Hey, what do you think of this? Yeah. Is this like fucked up and weird?" And they're like, well, no, "That's, it's that's cool. the whole
0: reason sensitivity editors exist, right? Like, that's, exactly. Yeah. That's the whole purpose of it is to catch those subconscious biases, right? Like, a bias like that is not a reason to cancel someone. Right. It's right. it's legitimately a teaching moment, and it's yeah. just the creator's responsibility to make sure that they work with." Sensitivity editors and how their own potential bias might creep into the story and to have people gut check them on that.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Whew. All right. So that takeaway got away from us in classic commercial <laughs> fashion, but that was so <laughs> fun. Um, that yeah. wraps up our second takeaway from today's reading and sets us up for a bit of a breather so we can decompress from that conversation. So let's take a short break here. But don't go anywhere, folks, because we still have more to get through. Those spice morsels are piping hot in the oven, ready for consumption after a short break. So we'll
1: see you in a minute. Welcome back, everybody. Hope your appetite is engaged. (laughs) Hope you're covered (laughs) in worms. Let's get into our spice morsels. And the first one we've got to you today is... Huanui. Huanui. That's a tough one. <laughs> Huanui. I think Huanui. I'll say it confidently. Huanui. From this episode's reading, Leto reflects regarding the game of catching sand trout, quote, but the sand trout were mostly the game of children who caught them for the Huanui and for play, end quote. And we've actually seen the word before. And honestly, it's got a pretty straightforward definition. <laughs> it means death still. Oh. We've been hearing about death stills since literally the first book. Yeah. This is the method that they use for getting water from dead bodies. So thanks for listening. Have a great day. Love it. Just kidding. Oh, you got me. <laughs> oh, it's a gomjabar got him moment <laughs> brought to you by Pringles. Uh, <laughs> if we left it at that, that wouldn't be a very gomjabar thing. So let's dive deeper. Death stills. Who Huanui. Come in two varieties, a permanent Huanui and a portable Huanui. <laughs> Especially useful if you want to get that Jameis juice on the go. Now the permanent ones. Ew. <laughs> ew. <laughs> the permanent ones can be found in every seatch and many of the large stopovers. So they're they're around. They've been installed. And they are big old vats. With a space for a body and a series of heating and cooling elements to evaporate the water and condense it for collection so basically there's a high frequency wave generator it blasts this like lining of maker oil which apparently has a very high boiling point gets the whole concoction to almost 400 degrees fahrenheit and in this container all of the moisture in the body a huge majority of the moisture in the body basically evaporates It's captured in a series of locking lids, and then there's cooling elements that forces condensation that leads to then the flow meter, which will tell you, oh yeah, Jameis? Yeah, he was like 24 liters or whatever. (laughs) I can't remember how much water, how much Jameis juice we got from Jameis, but some amount. We're friends to him. The uh, portable models are (laughs) solar-powered. (laughs) and basically lack the precise flow meter of the permanent models. So it's kind of just a domed ordeal that uses the solar power to heat up. And it condenses straight into a large catch pocket. So you have to measure the water later. A lot less precise. Sounds like probably a lot slower as well. But still, you got Jameis Juice on the go, which is pretty good. The Dune Encyclopedia wraps up the entry on Huanui with this lovely little tidbit. After the distilling process, water measurement, and mingling with the tribe's water hoard, what little residue remained was treated with utmost care and buried in the earth to share with Shai Hulud. (laughs) Which is a very fancy way to say, They pour one out for a spicy (laughs) thick desert boy. Hell yeah! (laughs) They got got some Jameis juice. One for the boy. Got some Jameis juice left over. Pour it out for Shai Hulud.
0: (laughs) You love to see it. You love to see it. All right, morsel number two on our plate today. (laughs) Kralizek, the typhoon struggle. This one tastes like apocalypse. (laughs) (laughs) It truly does. In today's reading, we get this moment between Maurice and Leto too. Yeah. Quote, Fremen are led by men who have been blooded. What could you lead us in? Kralizek, Leto said, keeping his attention on the crouched figure. Maurice glared at him, brows contracted over his indigo eyes. Kralizek, that wasn't merely war or revolution. That was the typhoon struggle. It was a word from the furthermost Fremen legends. The battle at the end of the universe. Kralizek, the tall Fremen swallowed convulsively. End quote. Okay. So, what is Kralizek? And why does it have our boy Maurice swallowing convulsively? (laughs) Let's
1: unpack it. I was trying to to picture that, just like swallowing a lot, just.
0: (laughs) Right. Real sloppy. Real sloppy of (laughs) him. (laughs) So first up, it's worth noting quickly that Kralzek, the term itself, comes up for the first time in this book. So it's not a Dune, it's not a Dune Messiah, but here in Children of Dune, it's mentioned almost 20 times. So it's important. (laughs) Right.
1: right? (laughs) We
0: get the definition a couple of those 20 times, but the clearest one is what we get from Maurice himself in today's reading. Quote, That wasn't merely war or revolution, that was the typhoon struggle, it was the word from the furthermost Fremen legends, the battle at the end of the universe, end quote. Right. The Dune Encyclopedia, as usual, gives us some additional context and dimension to this idea. We get this passage from the chapter about Zensuni wanderers and their cultural traditions. Quote, on their way to paradise, the Fremen expected that there would be a grand devastation. A Ragnarok or Kralizek, the typhoon wind at the end of the substantial world. End quote. Mm. Cool. So from those two definitions, we can tell that Kralizek, much like Ragnarok or much like Armageddon, is seemingly this religious belief in a final battle, right? In a in a world ending, universe shattering final battle between good and evil before the Day of Judgment, specifically in Fremen culture. Notably, for the folks out there who know about Norse mythology, Ragnarok is a quote-unquote world-ending event, but it ends the age of the gods and begins the age of mankind. So while the world has technically ended, humanity seemingly continues. Right. Relating all of that back to Dune... Leto is on one level, as we've discussed in today's discussions, using Kraloszek as a way to grab Maurice's attention, to make sure that Maurice doesn't kill him. And he's playing with this like very evocative idea, this like Armageddon-style event that the old Fremen believe in, to perhaps hint at what is to come, to perhaps yeah. even hint what he has seen in some of his visions of the future. Maybe Kralisek will come to pass, and maybe Leto will be involved in it somehow. We know how much foreshadowing has been in this book, and we can only assume that everything Leto says may or may not be foreshadowing for literal things that will happen in the future. It's true. That wraps up our episode today. Wow. What a beast of an episode. What a set of chapters truly mind-blowing stuff yeah it felt non-stop like stuff was going down every which way (laughs) yeah
1: yeah i'll just say now i forgot to mention it in the chapter (laughs) chapter 52 was the first time i've ever yelled at a book (laughs) because i was yelling what (laughs) every every page i would turn i thought that i was missing stuff because i was like there's no there's no world in yeah. which what I'm reading is the book. Anyway, yeah, you're right. Nonstop, these chapters are dense. It's fucking crazy.
0: Crazy. Truly really wild. And like we said earlier, we're in the end game. No yeah. one's hitting the brakes. The brake pedal is broken, folks.
1: <laughs> we we actually, it was uh, uh, Namri actually cut the brake pedal yeah, right before shit. we uh-huh. pulled, out of, pulled out of the driveway. <laughs> piece of shit, yeah.
0: <laughs> so for the next episode's reading, Make sure you have read through page 546 in the paperback version, or if you have a different edition than we do, read through the chapter that ends on the sentence quote, but she couldn't recall who'd said those words, end quote.
1: Mm. <laughs> it's it's probably serious. something on Gamjabar. It's probably one of us. Considering <laughs> how long these episodes are, just statistically. <laughs>
0: Friends, there is no real ending, it's just the place where you stop the recording. But this podcast is always one step beyond logic, so help spread the word of Mwadib and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And be sure to check out the other shows on the Lore Party Podcast Network on loreparty.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at lore underscore party. Thank you so much for listening, and remember, whoever controls the podcast controls the universe. We'll see you on the golden path.